This is Arun Vanagopal sitting in for Leonard Lopez today, and that was the soundtrack to Silver Spoons, an early 80s sitcom about human connections. In his biography of Steve Jobs, Walter Isaacson tells us that the former head of Apple consciously decided against including an off switch in all Apple devices. Jobs compared an off switch to the finality of death. What this means is that your smartphone, regardless of brand, is designed to always be on. That's good for smartphone makers, but not so good for us. For this week's Please Explain, we are talking about conversation. You might think smartphones have made us more connected, but Sherry Turkle argues they're actually killing our conversations. Turkle is the founder and current director of the MIT Initiative on Technology and Self, and her book is Reclaiming Conversation, The Power of Talk in a Digital Age. Hi, Sherry. Hi. And we also welcome you, our listeners, to join in. Do you feel like your conversations, either with your friends, your family, coworkers, have they changed because of smartphones and technology? We want to hear from you. So give us a call at 212-433-9692. Leave a comment on our show page at wnic.org slash Lopate or on Facebook or Twitter where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. Yes, we are connected over here. All right, Sherry, we know that this is a problem. This is what we talk about all the time, but just how bad is it? Well, it's both bad, but it's also something that people are starting to talk about. So when people ask me, am I optimistic or pessimistic, I say I'm activistic because I think that we're kind of ready for a change. Last year, 89% of Americans said that they interrupted their last conversation to look at something on their phones. But 82% said that it deteriorated the conversation. And so with numbers like that, I think people are aware that they're doing something that isn't quite in their best interest. And so I think we're ready to both ask for phone designers and technology designers to start to give us phones that offer us options that are maybe make it easier for us to turn off our phones when we want them to, something that are something with a little bit more of an off switch, and and also for us to begin to re-examine our behavior and and make technology work a little bit better for us and really our human values, our family values, the kinds of conversations we want to have at work and in the home um, and at school in education. I was really haunted by a quote uh, in your book from a high school senior who tells you, I'd like to learn how to have a conversation someday. Yes. I mean, this guy's 18 years old, and he's, and he's saying, like, not, not today, but eventually. He's not ready for this whole thing that we call having a conversation. Right. Is this something you're seeing across the board? Uh, is it young people and old alike? Well, I'm certainly seeing it from young people who tell me something very moving. Many young people say, and when you watch behavior of young people and parents, you can see why that they have never taken a walk with their parents, with their dad, let's say, when he didn't bring a phone along. I mean, he's, he just never had a, had a conversation where there wasn't also a phone. And one of the very striking pieces of research that, 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 that has haunted me is that if you go out to lunch with someone and put a phone on the table, two things will happen. The conversation will go to more trivial subjects, and you'll feel less of an empathic connection with the person you're having lunch with. 
And what's true of lunch is true of taking a walk in the woods. It's true of taking a walk to the corner store. That the phone becomes a symbol of all the elsewheres that we can be. And so the greatest gift you can give to your children, to your friends, to your family, to your partner is to, is to put away your phone. Because these kids who are saying that they don't know how to have a conversation are, are kids who really haven't been brought up at dinner tables, at breakfast tables, where people sat down uninterrupted and spoke to each other. And, think, and that's a gift we haven't given to our children. I mean, the problem is you have to be so willful about it. I'm, I'm thinking about when I'm having conversations with my own daughter who's 15 and how, how much I'm telling myself, okay, look at her, don't look at the phone, you know, just put that phone under a pillow or put a dog on top of it, something, anything to avoid that, that weird distraction. I mean, how do you actually get at this? Well, you're at your first step because you realize it's a problem. I interviewed, I interviewed one dad who talked about how when his 11-year-old was two, he used to give her baths, and he used to talk to her when she was in her bath, and that those conversations were the he, – he knows that they were the basis for their incredibly good relationship now. And, and he says now he has a two-year-old, he puts the water in the bathtub, he makes sure it's not too hot and it's not too high up, and then he sits on, he puts down the seat on the toilet, and he sits and he does his email. And he says, I know this is terrible. I'm ready for a change. I'm ready for a change. And I think that's where we are, where we're sort of at a place where we, where we have the values available to us to know that we're not in a good place with this technology. And yet, as you say, it is a kind of triumph of the will to, to do something about it. But I, I think we're at a point where we want to do something about it, and we're fortunate in that all we need is each other. We have to look up and start the conversation. We are the empathy app. You know, we, we are having a crisis in empathy, because when you don't have conversation, when you deny your children these conversations, they are going to be uh, having a harder time developing the uh, skill of empathy, which is just simply putting yourself in the place of the person you're talking to because they haven't had that practice in doing that. And to get that back, to develop that in them, what they need is us. And what we need is each other. So I'm, as I say, I'm not optimistic because I think that the, you know, I think there's resistance because our phones are seductive. But I think that I'm activistic in the sense that we can do this. And I think more and more people want to do this and see the need for doing this. Let's hear from one of our callers. This is Alexa in Forest Hills. You there, Alexa? Yes. Hi, can you hear me? We can. Yeah. What's your question? Okay. Thanks for taking my call. I missed the beginning part of the segment because I was on with the screener, but it's such an important conversation, and I'm looking forward to getting it on the podcast. But I'm changing gears a little bit. I wanted to talk about texting and how that has changed conversation. Obviously, texting is only available to us as a means of communication with our smartphones. But I find that a, a lot is communicated with emojis and bitmojis, and often the end of a conversation isn't wrapped up the same way that it's done over a landline or over an actual voice call when you kind of wrap things up and talk too soon, bye, it's kind of just ended either with an emoji or just stopped. Um, and it was something that I just noticed the other day, and I just wanted to mention it. Thank you. 
Sherry, what do you think about that? It's texting is also... Yeah, well, I, my position is that I am not anti-technology. I'm pro-conversation. And so I welcome um, and I embrace all of the different ways that texting and email and Snapchat and all the, all Instagram and all the other new ways that we have of communicating with each other um, have given us exciting new possibilities for relating. All of that is great. Um, but I think that we need to be respectful of what face-to-face conversation can do, where we do wrap things up with more closure, where somebody says, hey, um, uh, I, I want to know what you really think. We're ending this without my knowing how you feel about me and how you feel about what we're doing here or what is our plan. Um and not just kind of disappearing, as you can in a text with a funny meme or a picture or a see you soon or a get back to you. And we, we deflect when we text very often. We, we find ways to just drop out or leave somebody with a funny moment. And so the, the point is not to say that texting is bad or texting is lesser. or The point is to be respectful of what conversation can do and make sure that we have enough of it in our lives and in the lives of the kids we're raising so that they develop the empathic skills and the fluid skills of conversation that allow them to have the relationships they need to have with other people and also with themselves. Because one very important part of my argument is that we we learn how to have conversations with ourselves by having conversations with other people. And if you don't have conversations with other people, you lose in your ability for self-reflection. There's kind of a virtuous circle here that conversations with other people teaches you to have conversations with yourself. So when you see a mom pushing a stroller, texting, and not engaging in that back and forth with her kid in the stroller, you know, that, that child is losing out on so many different levels, losing out and learning the empathic arts, but also losing out in the beginnings of learning how to have an internal dialogue. Um, and also losing out, and I'll just add this as kind of a third thing, in, in the capacity to be constructively alone. Because we learn how to be alone and how to develop the capacity for solitude by being alone with other people. And that's not the same as being continually stimulated by something on a screen. And people are increasingly terrified of being alone. And studies are showing that after six minutes alone, people will give themselves electroshocks rather than just sit quietly without a device. And that's scary (laughs) because the capacity to be alone allows us to be constructively with other people and really hear what they have to say. I'm Arun Vanigopal, sitting in for Leonard today, and I'm talking to Sherry Turkle, author of Reclaiming Conversation, The Power of Talk in the Digital Age. Uh, we've got a few more callers, so why don't we go to Walter in Queens. Are you there? Yes, I am. Can you hear me? I can, yeah. So I had a very interesting experience. I very much agree with Sherry and teaching my children to have conversations I was talking to my teenage son. His response included the word Google 
and my phone all of a sudden chimed in saying it would search for what he had said last. So rather than just needing to turn them off or put them aside, they're actively participating in interrupting conversations now. And I think that's kind of an interesting thing to call out um, because it interrupts the flow. It's now demanding attention, not just passively waiting to be used. It sounds like it's getting to like the howl stage of technology. Is, Is this what's happening, Sherry? Yes, yes. Our phones are... Our phones are moving in the direction of being more and more active participants in our conversation. And I would say this is something that as consumers, uh, we have a voice in saying, you know, I'm not so crazy about this. I I don't want this. I'd like to be able to turn this off. I'm curious. You've been talking about empathy. What happens if we're not... Is this sort of like a facial recognition thing? Is it our inability to recognize very subtle expressions? Is that what empathy is about, that uh, the ability when you're 6 or 8 or 10 or 18 to be able to talk to somebody and understand how they're feeling? What is it that is lost? It's this last thing. It's Empathy is the ability to imagine the sort of feeling state of the person you're talking to. And then the question is, well, how do you develop that? And children develop it by, by looking at facial expressions, by hearing the tone of voice, by hearing the cadence of speech, by, by doing the kind of back-and-forth dance of trying one thing, it doesn't work, trying another, all of which are easy to you know, get into if you're having even the simplest of back-and-forth conversations. Um, An apology is a tremendous generator of empathy because in an apology, you have to look at me and when you say you're sorry, you have to, my grandmother used to say, don't apologize unless you're contrite enough. It won't work because you have to be contrite enough that I, my face will somehow soften if I've been mad at you. And you have to see if my face has somehow softened and you have to be sensitive to that and then you have to you know be ready to show that you feel really bad and that you know then to sort of move in with well what you'll do for me and 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 you have to be ready to you know take the initiative if I'm if I seem to be ready to move on to a different stage in the relationship all of this back and forth is practice that you can get starting at three years old. And none of this happens if you apologize by saying, I'm sorry, and hit send. Smiley, uh, like sad face emoji. Yeah, sad face emoji. I mean, none of this happens with I'm sorry, hit send, or sad face emoji. (laughs) So the greatest gift you can give to your kid is to say, hey, you're not going to show up for grandma's roast beef this Friday? Um, call her. And then the child, I tell one story in Reclaiming Conversation of of a mother who was so sick of her 13-year-old boy, um, you know, canceling on his grandparents at the last minute for dinner. And she says, you just have to call them. You can cancel all you want, but you have to call them. No more of this, I'm sorry, hit send. And when he calls them, you know, he hears the disappointment, you know, he hears that the roast is in the oven, that the grandfather has also already made a special dessert, 
that the ice cream sundaes have a special topping. I mean, he hears the consequences of his act. It doesn't mean that every time he goes to dinner, but he he hears the feeling states of the people he's disappointing. He begins to realize the consequences of his actions. And and that is so important because when we talk about cyberbullying, it's really on, on, on one level you can think of it as a consequence of having no empathy at all for the people we're bullying. They're like, you know, they're, they're like names on a screen. We're not thinking of them as people. Let, let's, and, let's, let's take another call from uh, yeah. Dennis in Queens. You there, Dennis? Uh, yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yeah, what's your question or your anecdote? Um, I just wanted to say that the, uh, every t- when I go to a restaurant and I see a couple, a man and a woman or a man and a man, sit down and uh, take out their phone and start looking at their emails or, or texting and not talking to each other. I find that defeats the purpose of why you go out to dinner together. And um, it just seems to me that it's very disconnected and uh, um, impersonal. And uh, and I think it's rude to do it in a restaurant to, for the other people. Anyway, yeah, thank you. Sherry, it's like, this is like one of those strange dystopian kinds of things. All these people sitting there just kind of glazed over their dinner it's like the death of romance itself, isn't it? <laughs> right. Well, you know, I would I would think, you know, there it's dystopian and it feels like the end of romance, but where I study it in the home, it's it's serious too. I mean, if you have dinner with your family and everybody has their phone out, um you're losing an opportunity again to be in one of these empathy generating situations where you teach you teach your family how to know each other. And it's, um, you know, being out to dinner is one thing, but it's perhaps even more toxic when it becomes the way in which you have breakfast and dinner. Because all of that talk about all the good that it did for families to have dinner together, um, that meant dinner together with people looking at each other and talking to each other. It didn't mean necessarily dinner together with everybody with a laptop in front of them or a phone in front of them. So um, uh, one of the most uh, uh, shocking things, I think, is that 14- and 15-year-olds you know, complain about their parents and the lack of conversation in the home and particularly at dinner. And one of my favorite quotes from my book is that a 14-year-old saying about a parent who who takes out his phone at dinner to, I think, check, you know, who is the cinematographer in some Woody Allen movie. She says, stop Googling. I want to talk to you. I mean, she, she wants to talk to her dad. She doesn't care about this new information. She wants to talk to her dad. And I see that as a sign of hope, that I think young people are, are willing to sort of blow the whistle on this and say, I want to talk to my parents. I'm ready for that. I crave that. We're exploring the state of the conversation on today's Please Explain, and we're speaking with Sherry Turkle. She's a psychologist, a professor of the Social Studies of Science and Technology at MIT, and the director of the MIT Initiative on Technology and Self. Her book, Reclaiming Conversation, The Power of Talk in the Digital Age, is published by Penguin. And we'll have more after a break. I'm Arun Vanagopal, in today for Leonard Lopate. This is WNYC and WNYC.org. 
You used to call me on my. You used to, you used to. Yeah. You used to call me on my cell phone. Late night when you need my love. Call me on my cell phone. All right, little Drake on the Leonard Lopez show. This is Arun Vanigopal sitting in for Leonard today, and I'm talking to Sherry Turkle about her new book, Reclaiming Conversation, The Power of Talk in the Digital Age. Sherry, I was just reminded of something when you're talking about families just sitting down for dinner. Years ago, well before people had smartphones, I was in high school. I remember my teacher just did an informal poll uh, of all the students in the class, and she asked us how many of us had dinner with our families on a daily basis, and I was the only person who did. And this is like 16 mm-hmm. students. It wasn't a huge class, but it was kind of shocking. Just wondering how much of it, of this is a problem that predates smartphones, just people sitting down together. Is this a problem that's, you know, an American problem? Well, it isn't an American problem because the, if anything, um, the uh, craze to be on your phone rather than with each other is something that in Asia and Korea and China has, in Japan, is, I, I was going to say out of control, but that's, I mean, is, is, is far more advanced than here. Advanced not being used as a positive word. Right. I mean, it's far right. more sure. sort of, you know, uh, expanded than here. Um but but I guess I want to stress that I'm not looking back to kind of a golden age where people had dinner together every night or glamorizing a world that never was when people sat and, you know, said, hey, you know, hey, honey, let's 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 just have an evening of chat with the children tonight. Um, what I'm pointing to is that our phones give us a new option that we never had before which is that when we're together, on those occasions when we are together, whether that's once a week or twice a week or those stolen hours, you know, on Sunday before people disperse to do their activities, that little breakfast thing you have, we can be elsewhere while we're with each other. And, and that people are choosing to do that on that walk to the candy store with your father, on that walk to go shopping with your mother, uh, in the playground, when, when parents go to um, games to see their kids, you know, they've gone to the game. They, I mean, my daughter did crew. I mean, I know what it is to get to that obscure lake in New Hampshire to watch that crew thing. And then they're on their phones. And don't watch the crew thing at all and miss the scoring point. And, and, and the kids know this. So I'm, I'm basically saying that, that we are missing being with each other even when we ostensibly are with each other. And that's what's new and that's what's unique about the phone is it throws us into this kind of attentional disarray. And our kids know it. So children will talk about how they used to have their father's attention when they used to watch television with their father, kind of like watch a Sunday game, and that he used to be reading, they'll say, the New York Times, and he would put down the paper when the scoring happened. 
but he doesn't really put down his email to make a casual comment. He can't be interrupted for a casual comment or a casual conversation because the email is so engrossing. Let's, and let, I think that's the that's the piece that's changed that we're that we're getting ourselves engrossed in in another activity during all of those little moments when we used to at least be together or we're saying to each other, "Hey, hold on just for 2 minutes. I need to make a call. It, it could be urgent. Just hold hold your thought." We're putting each other on pause as though we were machines. Let's take another the, caller here. This is uh, Albert in Harlem. Are you there? Yes. Hi. Do you have some rules about how, how you deal with cell phone usage at home? Yeah. I have um, a general rule with my wife and a personal rule in general, is to, which is to, um, to channel, it, uh, channel that, that craving to use the cell phone by only allowing it when it, it directs us back to each other. So if you want to share something or... You know, if it's some kind of information that's relevant to whatever you're, you happen to be doing, you know, that's the only reason to take it out. And I wonder if you have any thoughts on, on that kind of uh, rule-based rechanneling, that, that craving to keep looking at it. So, I think that's great. I mean, I think any rules that my, the little algorithm I follow is that, is that we're not trying to get rid of the technology, we're trying to put the technology in its place. And putting it in its place is saying, I'll use you when I have a reason to use you. You know, I'll use you when I'm lost or when I'm, you know, where I really need to take a call or there's an emergency or I need to learn something or I need to figure out, you know, I mean, all the reasons we use our phones. But it's not there for whenever I feel what one person I interviewed called a lull in the conversation. Because I think that we're, we're not teaching our children and we're not allowing ourselves who have grown up knowing how important a lull in the conversation is. A lull in the conversation means that somebody is thinking, and you should be attentive to that and, and tolerant and interested in when someone falls silent and has a moment of reflection. And instead, we're, we're grabbing our phone during that moment of lull. We're, we're, we're anxious about a silence. And, and, and I think that that's where we need to retrain ourselves to say, you know, uh, I'm just cool with that. I'm going to just get relaxed again during a moment of silence, and I'm going to use my phone when I need to use my phone. You've been studying this for a while, right? When did you first start noticing how technology was really fundamentally affecting this sort of human interaction? Well, I've been studying technology fundamentally affecting human interaction since 1976, but my first take on it uh, when I began to study uh, personal computers and the way in which uh, people were using them to play games, to uh, kind of project themselves into the space of the machines, was actually quite positive. I was on the cover of Wired magazine, which would not happen today uh, as, a, as a kind of cyber diva, because I called, um, I called the Internet uh, really an identity workshop, a place where people played with identity. And in a way, that's still true, except what's changed is that when you have technologies that are always on and always on you, for you to connect with elsewhere, 
we're starting to use that always-on, always-on-you technology to be elsewhere even when we're with other people. And, and that really is the current focus of my work, um, letting technology take us elsewhere, put other people on pause, interrupt conversations, and increasingly, although we haven't really gotten into this, the use of technology, robotic companions, software agents that you chat with, using technology to talk about our problems, really the technologies don't know anything about um, talking about your personal problems with Siri or with uh, uh, computer robots or agents that are designed to make you feel as though they understand you, um, that is a fool's errand because they haven't lived a human life. They don't understand you. That's not a helpful conversation. You write about the work that goes into conversation. What kind of work are you referring to? Well, I talk about two things. I talk about the work that conversation can do, and by that I mean the, you know, what you can achieve uh, through conversation. And there I'm primarily referring to the work of developing empathy by learning how to listen, learning how to be bored in a constructive way, you know, learning how to listen for the silences, learning how to say, hey, that's okay, because it's when people fall silent that they reveal themselves to each other. Um, that's the work that conversation does, but it takes a certain amount of inner work to be able to uh, appreciate those things. And I'm not sure it's just work. I mean, it takes a certain amount of inner cultivation to to not get anxious and feel I, I, I want to be constantly stimulated. I don't want to have to ever have a lull. I don't want to ever have to tolerate um, having to listen for all of that. And I interviewed one woman who, who spoke about the seven-minute rule, that it takes seven minutes to really understand if a conversation is going to be worthwhile, if a conversation is going to really pay off in, um, you know, in, in what it's going to give to you and whether it's going to enrich you. And I was speaking to this young woman. I thought, my God, this is a wise person. I love this. I love her, you know. <laughs> and then it turned out that she says she never follows the rule. She's not willing to put in those seven minutes. She's not willing to do the work of conversation. She goes to her phone. She wants to be stimulated. That's Brenda, what I mean by the work. Brenda is a caller uh, calling from the Bronx. Brenda, you have a story to share with us? Yes. Um, this morning, I, I had reached the peak of aggravation. My husband is, has always been a big reader. And, you know, he read books and magazines. But it's been quite a while that he's reading on the telephone all the time. I guess I don't know why it bothers me more. It's just easier for him to be constantly, constantly reading. I pulled it out of his hand today and threw it. I, um, I can't. Everything I want to say to him is an intrusion. Everything is an intrusion on what he's reading. The guy is brilliant. I'll give him that, you know. And I love to read too. 
but I mean, even responsibility, even taxes, everything is going by the wayside because I really think he's addicted to reading. On, and we used to listen to NPR together, to NYC. We would listen to it, all of it, and talk about it. Even and now, I can't. I can't even discuss stuff with him from the phone, from the radio anymore because he's on reading on that goddamn phone. Well. Sherry, uh, in 20 words or less, do you have any marital advice for Brenda from the Bronx? I would just say she's not alone. She's not alone, and, and I'm not sure smashing the phone is the first step, but she, needs to, she and her husband need to talk. Somehow he needs to understand that she loves him. She loves him. And she wants to talk to him. Thank you, Sherry. Sherry Turkle is a professor of the social studies of science and technology at MIT. Her book, Reclaiming Conversation, The Power of Talk in the Digital Age, is published by Penguin. Sherry, thank you. My pleasure.